If you have your Bible, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. It's funny how things stick into your, in your uh, mind, at least, I don't know, in my mind. Can't speak of anybody else. <clears throat> I had a friend when I was about eight years old that um, I used to spend the night at his house, and his family would, uh, came to church at Choice Hills. Um, funny how things like that happened, but uh, so this would have been 1990-ish, 88, 90, something like that. And uh, his family would come to Choice Hills, and we'd go down to the children's church. The only thing I remember about this, uh, the children's church back then, was there was a what seemed to be a, a tall fellow, which back then everybody's tall, I guess, but a tall man that led the uh, led the music. Or, I'm sorry, led the children's church. I bet some of you uh, people that have been here a while could probably tell me who it is. But he always used to do this right here. He he wore his necktie too tight, and he always used to do this. I just remember that. Uh, anyway, uh, so. Uh, after children's church, but right before the service was over, back in those days, uh, all the kids would come out into the service, like during the invitation. And uh, I just remember, uh, the only thing I remember about the church was uh, singing Victory in Jesus. And that was one song that stuck in my mind way back then, long before I knew the Lord. And uh, so it's just funny how those things stick in your mind. Ephesians. Let's look at Ephesians chapter number three. So we're going into a new year. And, uh, you know, as we go into a new year, often what, what, you know, you obviously are thinking about two different things. You're, you're thinking, first of all, about the past. Uh, part, of the, uh, part of the idea of going into a new year is the fact that you are reflecting, perhaps, on the past. And sometimes those reflections are unpleasant. Uh, there's sometimes people that, are, that aren't here that will not be here in 2022 with us, that were here in 2021. I know that's true in my family. And then you also think about the positive things that have happened in the past year. And uh, uh, I'll give you an example. For, and I, I'm sure each one of you could probably give examples. Uh, my mom, you know, she had a test for a PET scan looking for cancer because of her, some of post-COVID uh, things that came up on a... Um, on a CAT scan for in her lungs, and uh, she had a PET scan, and it was clear. And uh, so that's a blessing. That's a positive thing uh, that we can look back on. But you also we also look forward to the next year, uh, and we look at we consider the the possibilities. We consider our duties, our responsibilities, what the future might hold. Like David mentioned, uh, with decisions that have to be made probably in 2022 and uh, that will affect 2023 and 4 and 5 and on through the years. So as we look at that, I wanted to, to drew my mind to a verse of Scripture that I'd like to look at, a passage really, uh, in Ephesians chapter 3. So we're going to look at uh, verse 4. We're going to start in verse 4 and read down through uh, probably verse number 15. Okay, so let's pray and then we'll begin reading in verse 4. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for everyone that's able to be here and those that are able to listen uh, by means of the internet. And thank you for uh, just the fact of your spirit uh, working in us at all times by your grace. Lord, if it was not for you working in us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Lord, we would be a real mess. Lord, we are not, you have not left us here in this Christian life to figure it out on our own. Uh, you've not given your commandments to us just to and expect us in our own strength to follow them. You have given us 
all things that pertain to life and godliness. And I thank you for what you've done in each and every heart that's, uh, that's here and those listening. I thank you for what you've done this year. Uh, some things, Lord, this year are probably difficult uh, for, for some of us to thank you for. But Lord, uh, we've come to this point uh, and we give you thanks for life. We give you thanks for your blessings that you've given to us through this year. And uh, Lord, we pray you'd help us to be faithful coming into the next year. Now bless, Lord, our time as we look in Ephesians, I'm sorry, uh, Philippians chapter 3. Lord, guide and direct our study, we pray, that your spirit would uh, stir among us and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 4. <clears throat> says this, Though I might, uh, guess, uh, again, you have to get the context here, Paul is speaking of himself personally. Did I say Ephesians? Did I, get it? I keep on saying one and the other. Philippians chapter 3. I'm sorry. Philippians, I see faces going. And it, Brother Mark took off his glasses. I mean, you know that's serious. Anytime somebody wears glasses, starts taking them off, you know you better start dodging. <laughs> if, uh, if, how about it again? Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Okay, everybody, everybody on the same page, pun intended. Verse 4 of Philippians chapter 3, the Bible says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Again, Paul is speaking of himself personally, okay? It's a fact of biblical inspiration that all of the Bible was not dictated to the writers of the, of the, the human writers of the Scripture. It wasn't, it wasn't like God spoke from heaven or spoke in their heart in an audible voice and they wrote down everything. They were, no, God used their personalities and their lives, and this is a perfect example. Paul's giving his own personal testimony about how he came to know the Lord and his life before he came to know the Lord. And he says, uh, he says he had a great deal uh, upon which he might trust in the flesh. Verse 5, he's, now he's starting to list these things in his life that were grounds upon which he trusted. In other words, uh, points of confidence, not a good confidence, but a confidence uh, whereby he trusted in himself that he was right with God and righteous before God because of these facts. Verse 5, he says, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, that is the strictest sect in Judaism at that time, concerning zeal persecuting the church. He was so zealous for his religion that he was willing to persecute those that believed on Christ, okay? And, of course, we know the first believers on Christ were, of course, Jewish people. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Okay, so if you looked at Paul from, if you were to examine Paul's life from the outside, what you would see is a spotless life, a life that was, that was blameless. Now, that doesn't mean sinless. Blameless means you look at it from the outside, uh, according to the measure of the law, and outwardly, everything was right. Everything was right. He says he was blameless. Okay? Verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency 
of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. So you know what Paul is doing? First, he's describing his life before he knew the Lord. And then what he's doing is, then what he does, in, if we look at verse 7 and 8, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> he says, But what things <clears throat> were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. So he looked at all of those things upon which he trusted. And, and you know, the same is true in our day. People rely on any number of things to convince themselves that God will accept them on those grounds. I mean, any number of things, uh, even things that aren't directly, directly related to God, you know, uh, volunteering at the local soup kitchen or, I mean, just, just anything, anything that it doesn't have to make sense, it doesn't have to be rational, it certainly doesn't have to be scriptural. People take any and everything, any and every good thing about them or that they have done and they use that as confidence whereby they convince themselves that they are right with God because they've done or are these things. Some people do it just simply because I, my friend, Brother uh, Tim Perry, some of you remember Brother Perry came and pre has preached here before. He, he thought he was a Christian because he was born in the United States. Just, it wasn't anything in particular that he had done. He thought that because he was born as a an American citizen, that he was thereby a Christian and was going to heaven as a result. As I said, people will trust in almost anything, and Paul had a great deal to trust as far as that goes. But notice what he says in verse 7 and 8. He says he counted it lost. So what this is is a picture. This is a picture in Paul's life individually. With the, it is the essence of what every person does that comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because all of us, before we know the Lord, there's all these things we trust in. I'm going to heaven, or I'm right with God, or I hope that I'm going to heaven because I have done X, Y, or Z. And we fill in the blanks with whatever, maybe the way we're raised, maybe with you know, ideas we've heard, or whatever the case might be. And we trust in those things. But at some point in our life, at some point in our lives, we have to come to the point where we're willing to count that all but loss. When we turn our back on that stuff. Now notice what it says. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless. And I count all, listen to this, all things but loss. He was willing. Listen, Paul, if necessary, he's saying, he was willing to turn his back on anything and everything if that was necessary for him to receive Christ. This is what you might describe as repentance. This is what he's talking about. And even in the Gospels, you find hints of this same kind of language when Jesus said, for instance, to the, the, the rich young ruler who came to him, and he said, he, said, he said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus answered, and he said, 
He said, keep the commandments. He says, I've kept them from my youth up. He says, you lack one thing. What did he say? He says, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And a lot of people think that's what you have to do. That they have, over the years, they've thought that that's what the Lord was saying, that the way to, ha- to go to heaven is you have to become, uh, you have to become, you have to take a vow of poverty in, in essence. And you have to sell all you have and give to the poor. And that's what they've, that's what they've deduced from that. But what the Lord was saying is everything, every confidence, everything. And if there is anything, if there is anything that stands between you and the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what it looks like, what face it has, what you call it, how good it is or bad it is. Whatever stands between you and the Lord Jesus Christ and eternal life. You must repent of that. Even the best of things will drag people's souls to hell. It would have with Paul. I mean, you say, I was, a, I was circumcised the eighth day according to the law of God. I kept the law of God. I was blameless. I was a Pharisee. I was the strictest sect of the right religion. That's what he says. He says, you know what he did? I counted all but loss. I turned my back on it. Why? Because none of that brought me to Christ. And Christ was worth it all. He said, not only that, he said, I count it what? But dung. Something to be refused. That I may win Christ. Now in verse 9 through verse uh, 11, there's some verses in here that are a little bit, I think have been misunderstood a little bit. But he says, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. Uh, this, is, this is such a basic but fundamental Uh, principle of Scripture. If we have our own righteousness by keeping laws, it is but our own righteousness. And it is insufficient to bring us to God. We will ultimately be rejected when God holds us to His standard. You need a greater righteousness than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. A greater righteousness than that which comes through keeping laws. It says, what righteousness? I'm just reading the verse here, verse 9. But that, that righteousness, which is through the faith of Christ. The righteousness which is what? Here's its source. Of God by faith. So for every one of us who has put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and has trusted in Him, we're turning our back on those other confidences that amount to nothing, that are vain. Turning our back on those and putting our entire trust and faith on Jesus Christ. God gives us His righteousness. So we're right in the sight of God, perfectly clean and righteous, and it has nothing to do with the laws we've kept, the rules we've, we've followed. That's amazing. That's amazing. And this is a fact you see in Scripture over and over and over. In this case, what you see it is personally. You have Paul saying, I wanted that righteousness more than anything else. I threw my whole life away. My reputation, my confidence, I threw it all away because it was not worthy to be compared. 
But not only that, he says, verse 10, that I may know him. You see, the door to knowing God truly, not, not merely knowing of God, as a distant figure, the, the distant creator who made us, yes, but who still is aloof from us. But this is knowing him personally. The doorway whereby we enter to know God is by faith in Christ. Because you can't know God until you're righteous. Right? That I may know him. Listen, salvation is not just is is not really about going to heaven at all. It's about knowing God. Going to heaven is just an, an, an additional benefit that comes with knowing God. Everything that we look forward to and we hope toward is found in God himself. And he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And we know Paul suffered immensely. Being made conformable unto his death. Verse 11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, let me just, just state it plainly because I'm trying to get to verse, down to verse number 13. Verse 11 is not saying he's trying really hard to stay faithful to God so that in the resurrection at the end of, end of time, he will be raised from the dead. Verse 11 is part of the sentence in verse 10 and verse 9. It is a list of all the benefits that he will receive because of his faith in Christ. If you look at verse 10, verse 9 says, And be found in him, this is the first benefit, righteousness which is of God by faith. Number, uh, verse 10, knowing God, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. You see all those things? Paul already knew God. And then at the very end, it's kind of, a, kind of a chronological description of the different blessings he's going to get. And then you get down to verse 11. If by any means I might attain the re resurrection of the dead. The truth is that the resurrection of the dead, that is the hope of eternal life with God, even after the body has died. And one day the Lord will call us out of the grave and we'll go to be with him forever in a, in a physical body. That's the resurrection of the dead. This truth was already sure to Paul. It's a part of the blessings that he has already given to him. In other words, if by any means I might attain in the resurrection of the dead, he's going to attain the resurrection of the dead. By means of what? By means of the faith in Christ that he got in verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 10. He's getting there. He's getting it. That's one of the blessings. Listen, if you follow the grammar, if you follow the grammar it becomes clear that I may know, I might attain. Those, that's, that's parallel grammar. So sometimes people get that confused. But he's saying, he's saying no, it's, it's sure. It's going to happen. I just haven't attained it yet. Now here's the thing I want, I want to point out with this for you. In those lists of blessings that Paul has, righteousness and, and, uh, 
and uh, verse number 10, knowing God, power of his resurrection, all those things. You can see that in different parts of the New Testament where Paul says that of his, of his faith and his life, right? The only part of this that is yet future is verse 11. Because he has not yet attained it. Has Paul attained the resurrection of the dead? Has he? If you say yes, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to call you down. Because you look at verse 12, what does he say? Not as though I had already attained. So he hasn't gotten it. But just because he hasn't gotten it yet doesn't mean it's not sure. It just means Paul is stuck. Like we are stuck. In the intervening time between the time when he believed on the Lord and the time that that reality of the resurrection was fully attained. Stuck. That's that time period I want to talk to you about tonight. That's where you are. That's where I am. We're stuck between we have all these blessings from God. We have all of these blessings from God. We have righteousness of, by faith. We know God and everything that goes with knowing God. All the fantastic blessings of prayer and of peace and of joy and the presence of His Spirit in us and His loving correction. All of those things we have now. And then we know that in the future we have a hope of a resurrection. In other words, though, we, though this outward man will perish, we have the hope that our soul to go, will go be with God immediately. And then when the Lord returns, so will we be with Him raised from the dead. Not as a, not as a ghost, but actually alive from the dead. And Jesus is the proof of that because He is the first to rise from the dead. So I take that as a, as a given. But we haven't received that yet. Just like Paul says in verse 12. Not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect. You see, in that day, we will have fully, listen now, fully attained all that God has promised us as His children. Fully attained it. But we have not yet attained it because we're stuck here right now. We're not yet perfect. We're not yet perfect. He says, either were already perfect. So the first principle I want to draw out of this is this. The race is not over. As long as we are stuck in between in this, listen, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm not in a hurry, okay? I say stuck, but it's, I'm not in a big hurry. I figure if I'm here, I might as well enjoy it to the fullest, right? Grandchildren, Grandchildren exactly, right? Grandchildren, that's a good part of being stuck. So we are, we're here right now. We haven't fully attained all that God has given to us, though it's sure to us. So what we can see from that is the race is not over. We are in the race now. In fact, a lot of the language in Philippians chapter 3 is language that, and you'll see in a minute, is deals especially with a race. It's a race. And, uh, and we'll see that in a minute. The second thing I want you to see is that as long as we are in our present condition, which is unfulfilled, all of God's promises are not yet fulfilled to us, we still have a lack. 
we lack. There are parts of our person and our, even as a Christian, now fully right with God. I mean, you talk about the blessings, the marvelous blessings that have been given to us by God in his word, shown plainly for us to understand and see. The marvelous blessings of our position before God. God is, listen, I said this to you last time I spoke here. God is not mad at us. God's not looking for a reason to hurt us. We're his children. You know, I see these kids sitting on the pew. These are my kids. I'm not mad at them. There's nothing, absolutely nothing in my heart at all that desires anything but their good. And you have children and you, you, you understand and feel that. That's, that. that's not, well, God's acting like me. No, that, that's, that's, a, that's a heart that's from the heart of God, right? He is the example. We are His children. He's not mad at us. He has given us such a wonderful and fantastic position before Him. Such marvelous blessings in that the half has not been told. But while we are here, we know that we are lacking. He said in verse 12, either we're already perfect. Paul recognized he lacked. Perfect, not, not perfection as in perfection from never sinning again. That's not what he's talking about. Perfection as in completion. Paul recognized that parts in his life were not completely the way they should be all the time. How many of you can can uh, give an amen to that fact. As long as we are here, that's our condition. Okay, given that fact. Well, let me, let me say this. <clears throat> Based upon this verse and others, we should lay to rest the, the idea, the doctrine of sinless perfection. It is not biblical. The idea that a, that a person can live a life to such a degree that they no longer sin. Paul said, according to this passage, Paul said that's not going to happen until the resurrection. So at no point before we meet the Lord will we be in such a place that we can relax our walk with God. Now listen. Or cease. Or pull back from earnestly following Him. That's dangerous. So easy to do, right? It is so easy to do. Just let the guard down. Let your foot off the accelerator a little bit. Slow the run down. And I want to show you why we tend to do this in just a minute. Look at verse number 12 again. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. Now look what he says. But I follow after. Now you get, here, here some of the language of the race is starting to come in, right? He's running. He's running. Now, at no point in time, do not misunderstand, at no point in time in any of these verses that we'll read is Paul trying to be saved. That's what you have to ascertain from the beginning. He's not trying to get saved. He's not trying to get eternal life. He has it. It's just part of it hasn't been fully realized. He has it now. He knows God. He's righteous before God. He is saved. 
But just because you're saved doesn't mean you have nothing to do. He's saying, I follow after. If that I may apprehend, that means seize, grasp, get, like this. If I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. So what Paul is doing is he's trying to lay hold on eternal life. That does, again, that does not mean he's trying to get it. But he's trying to walk worthy of it. Let me give you some verses here. Well, before I do that, because these verses kind of overlap, look at verse 13 again. Uh, verse 12, I'm sorry. But I follow after, if that I may, now notice this, I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. This is why it's important for you to understand the difference between active voice and passive voice. In the first clause, Paul is trying to, trying to lay hold on eternal life. He's trying to make the best use of his remaining time to, to live up to that which he has been given. But in the second clause, the Lord Jesus is the one doing the action. He says, I'm trying to apprehend this, this thing of eternal life. That is, I'm trying to make full use of it and, get, and walk worthy of it. And we'll see the verses in a minute that parallel that. But he says, but at the same time, Christ Jesus has already apprehended me. He says this, that I may apprehend, that's Paul, that for which also I am apprehended. I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. So what Paul is trying to get at, he's trying to lay hold on eternal life. He's trying to make the best use to, to, to live for God to the fullest. And he says, that's the same reason that Christ Jesus has apprehended me. He's grabbed a hold of me and he is working in me for that same purpose. So while I am seeking to lay hold on eternal life, not to get it, I have it. But laying hold on eternal life does not mean trying to get it. It means trying to seize it and make the best use of my time to the fullest. While I am seeking to lay hold on eternal life, Christ has already laid hold of me. That's security. Listen to these verses. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. What is he telling Timothy to do? Is he telling Timothy, who is a preacher, who believes in the Lord, who's been saved a long time at this point, who's leading in a church, is he telling Timothy, just keep trying, you might actually get saved eventually if you do enough? No. What does it mean? To, he's telling Timothy, lay hold on eternal life. He's, he's, like, he's saying, grab that thing, grab that thing and work yourself to death. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19, seven verses later. He says, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation. This is speaking of deacons. Against the time to come, 
That's the resurrection of the dead that we just read about. That they may lay hold on eternal life. Again, not that they might get it, but that they might use their life to the fullest to be worthy of it. Now, look at some of these verses. I said in verse number 13, uh, verse 12, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. So Jesus has laid hold of me and he's working in me for me to fully lay hold of eternal life so that I will live my life to the fullest for his glory to accomplish in this span of time before everything is fully realized. I will have lived in a way that is fully worthy and proper and right for that to which I am called. In other words, if God, for instance, if a child, the son of a king, if, if there is a king and he has a son, he's the son of the king, he is the king. He just, he's just waiting on that to be fully realized. He is the son of the king. You think of Prince Charles of Wales, right? That's what they call him, right? Prince of Wales, right? This is the next one in line after, is it Charles or Philip? I don't keep up with those people. Charles. So if he is the son of the king, should not he live in a way that is worthy of that calling? That's, this is, that's what this is saying. You have eternal life. You've been called to glory. You've been to, called to virtue, the Bible teaches. You've been called to holiness. You've been called to live, uh, live before God and, and walk in the will of God. And all of these things that God has promised in the future, he says, you need to walk worthy of that now. Right? That's what we do now. Listen to this. But the, he does not leave us to do it ourselves. He has apprehended us to work in us to that end also. That's what verse 13, verse 12 says. Now listen, listen to this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. Whereunto I also labor. Paul speaking. He said, I also labor. Notice the work. Striving. Striving. That's work. Right? Wherefore I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. So it's not just we're trying, we're trying, we're trying. Yes, we are. God has told us to. God has told us to live for God, to be circumspect, to be careful, to be zealous, to be holy. But he says, our working, our striving, our race that we're running is according to his work in us. We're not on our own. He is the one motivating us. He is the one giving us strength. He is the one giving us the very desire to live for God. How many of you would continue to live for God if God didn't put that desire in your heart? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, listen to this. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more, much more in my absence. Listen to this. This is the most destroyed verse in all the Bible. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
This is the same thing what I've been talking about. Paul is not telling them to get their own salvation. They have it already. That's abundantly clear from the whole book of Philippians. Now read the rest. For it is God which worketh in you both to will, that's the desire, and to do of his good pleasure. You know what? If we live for God in this intervening time before, before all that he's promised us is fulfilled, if we live for God, we have nothing to brag about. Because the only reason that we live for God is because that he's working in us. That is it. Now, he gives us grace. And we must use that grace and not let it be bestowed upon us in vain. I want to read you a few more verses and then get to verse 13. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, Ephesians 4.1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. If you're called to be a king, live like a king. If you're called to be a son of God, live like a son of God. If you're called to be a saint, that means holy one, then live like a saint. Walk worthy of that calling. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, that ye would walk worthy of God. Is any of us, is any of us in ourselves worthy of anything that God does for us? Worthy of his grace? No. We have him though. So if you have God, why don't we live like we have God? That's what it's saying. It's simple. Who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Notice that. We're going to be in his kingdom, rulers and reigners in his kingdom. Is reigner a word? Ruler and reigner. I don't know. I have to ask Joseph. (laughs) If we've been called to that, we should live unto that. For, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 says this, Wherefore also we pray always, always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. This is not talking about they've done enough good works, they've been moral enough so that God will finally say, Okay, you've done enough, now you can come to heaven. No. That's the thing. This is why we have to understand the doctrinal teaching of the Bible. That's already been settled. When you read these verses... The Thessalonians have already, been, have already received God. They already have Jesus Christ. This is talking about being worthy of his calling, living up to that which he has made us. Amazing. And fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory, by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Notice what it says, but the God of all grace make you perfect. That's God's doing, working with our doing that he has commanded. So go back to Philippians chapter 3 and we'll finish up here. Verse 13. How do we apprehend? How do we lay hold of eternal life? How do we seize all those things that the Lord wants us to do and live unto 
that glory and those blessings that he's given to us. Verse 13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. In other words, we acknowledge there's always room. There's always shortcoming. There's always a place where I can do better. All right? But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Notice that language of a race, the prize. The mark is the goal, the finish line. The prize is the reward that comes from running a race faithfully, diligently. But he says, what does he do? In verse 13, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. So as we look at the year, the end of a year gives us an opportunity to reflect and review. As we close the year, there are probably some things that you did in this past year that you would consider failures. I know there's things I've done that I would consider to be failures. Places where you missed the mark. Things you've done that show that you know that you, in which you have fallen short of God's will for your life. There's probably some things you've done that have caused some disappointment. That's natural when you reflect. So he says, forgetting those things which are behind. Some of the things that which are behind are not good. Some of the things that which are behind are bad. But let me ask you this. What benefit does it provide us to dwell on those failures and shortcomings? How does floundering in past sins help us in the present or the future? You know what they do? They discourage us. Dwelling on past failure from, last, from this year, all of this year, will discourage you. If we've made confession to God, we've repented of things we did wrong, God has forgiven us. And starting at that point, we can look forward, forgetting those things which are behind. And you know what? That's the way God deals with His people. He doesn't always bring the past up and dangle it over your head to discourage you all the time and beat you down with it. If you have, I'm talking about a person that has confessed it and said, Lord, I messed up, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. You've confessed it, you've made it right. He starts right there and he says, okay, forget that. Look this way. Reaching forth. Forgetting the past, reaching forward. So forgetting the past is good when there's things that, are, that trouble you about your life in the past. But also as we close the year, there are probably some things that happened this past year that you consider to be successes, victories, maybe that you've won 
or causes for rejoicing. Paul makes no distinction, forgetting those things which are behind. There are hopefully some times this year which you've, that you can say, I've done the will of God to the best of my ability. I made the right decision there. I was faithful to Him by His grace. But we should not dwell on those things either, forgetting those things which are behind. We must look forward. Dwelling on past successes hinders our ability in the present and in the future. Because dwelling on past successes can cause us to settle on our lees, take a break in our living for the Lord and lose our urgency and zeal to look to the future. God will remember all of it. He will remember it all. He'll forgive the bad and he'll remember all the good. There's no use in dwelling on it. And just like a runner, no matter how far he runs, he can't look back and say, man, I've, look, look how, far I am, how, far ahead, I, I, how far ahead I am of the pack. He can't say that. By looking back, he hinders his forward progress. So as we look into the new year, there's good and there's bad in 2021. But the Lord wants us to forget that and look forward to what he has for us now and to do everything in our power by his grace, because we know it's his grace, to lay hold on eternal life, fulfill his will in every way that we can. Let's pray.